0: Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host. We are on episode number 137. Today's topic is A New Deal for a New Era, Part 3. We'll be talking about a new deal for a new era in a few minutes, but first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. We've known for some time that climate change was an issue. We knew 30 years ago when James Hansen, NASA scientist, testified before Congress on a hot summer day in July of 1988. Scientists had known for some time before that, even oil company scientists have known since the early 70s that carbon dioxide emissions and other greenhouse gases were causing a greenhouse effect and that it's caused primarily by the emission of burning of fossil fuels. But that news and information and the significance of it has been very slow to reach our consciousness because our politics and our economy and our media are controlled by a few big players. We're told that we have a free enterprise system, but it would be more accurate to say we have a monopoly enterprise system. The type of capitalism we have is winner-take-all, and we have a choice. We can either organize our business system around the needs and interests of monopolies, or we can organize our business system around the needs and interests of entrepreneurs, But we can't do both. America is supposed to be an entrepreneurial society. But alas, entrepreneurs have a really hard way to go because they are competing with big businesses because big businesses have been able to rig the system in their favor. Big restaurant corporations rig the system in their favor versus small locally owned restaurants. Agribusiness corporations rig the system in their favor versus small, local, organic farmers. Big banks rig the system in their favor versus publicly owned banks. The big money investors want to privatize schools by making it seem like public schools are not doing a good job. But public schools do a fine job given the limited funding that they have, and given the challenges that they have. But climate change is very threatening, and in order to deal with that threat, we're going to have to completely restructure and re-engineer and remake our entire society. We're going to have to remake our political system, not that we have to have a constitutional convention in order to make changes, but we're going to have to have completely new people in office, and it's not just a matter of voting. We have to organize, educate, and agitate. We have to, we have to uh, make the type of change in our political system that only comes from lots and lots and lots of grassroots pressure. It's the type of pressure that environmentalists were putting on the Nixon administration in the late 60s and early 70s. Most of the landmark environmental legislation we have was signed into law from the early 60s to the early 70s. Much of it was signed into law by Richard Nixon, who was not an environmentalist, but he was afraid of the activists. At one point, there were a bunch of demonstrators in Washington, D.C., surrounding the White House. So Nixon had uh, hundreds of city buses uh, empty buses around the White House grounds to block the demonstrators. And he told his Secretary of State, or possibly at the time National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, he said, Henry, they're going to come in and get us. Richard Nixon passed the law, signed the laws that he did, not because he was an environmentalist, but because he was afraid of the activists. That's where we want government to be. We want them to be afraid of us. As it is, they're only afraid of their corporate donors, and they do the bidding of their corporate donors, with rare exceptions. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a rare exception because she did not accept political donations I and mean, did not accept corporate donations. She won her race with a tenth of the funding of her opponent, and as it turned out, she didn't need the money because she had the votes. But that's a a one-in-a-hundred type of person in Washington, D.C. We need for that type of person to be in the majority in Congress. Corporate donations need to go. And I can tell you personally, that's where I draw the line. Don't expect me to get excited about any candidate that accepts corporate money. The only candidate that gets my vote is the one that just says no... To corporate money. So we have a lot of work to do, we have to make a lot of changes, but in so doing we can create a whole new world and that's what the Climate Report is all about. This program is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. Also, visit theclimatereport.net for the latest podcast episodes, blog posts, and videos. Now, this episode is part three of A New Deal for a New Era, and we're reading through the website of the New Economics Foundation. We're almost through with the list of principles That is, the guiding principles, the six guiding principles of the New Economics Foundation. Number three is greater common and cooperative ownership. Common ownership of public goods, essential infrastructure, and services is the norm, with more businesses, assets, and technologies in cooperative, mutual, or employee ownership. So what would it look like for technologies to be in cooperative ownership? Well, that means that if we have solar technology, and if the world needs solar technology, then we're not going to allow that solar technology to be the exclusive domain of one or a few private companies. We're going to share that freely. It also means we have more worker-owned businesses. It also means we provide better funding for public schools, public libraries, public hospitals, It also means we see the forests around us as a collective asset. It also means the lawns on which our buildings are situated might become public property. At least the public might have an easement on that property to plant trees. Why would we do that? Because there's a lot of lawn that is idle, that is useless, And it needs to be planted with trees because those trees could absorb carbon. And those, not just trees, but also wildflowers. We need to let more of our lawns grow up with wildflowers to help pollinators and to provide habitat for wildlife, including birds and small mammals. That is an example of public and cooperative ownership because to some extent, we've we've just... We have uh, raised private property to the level of the sacred in the United States. Starting in the you know 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, the people of the United States were rapidly overtaking the land that used to belong to the Native Americans. In so doing, they were closing off the commons because the Native Americans had more common mutual and cooperative ownership of land. In most of most cases their concept of private property was just foreign to them because they saw it as cooperative and they saw it as something that was commonly owned in other words owned by the community not a few individuals. Now, the fake history of the United States that most of us learned would have us believe That the Indians were just primitive and the world had to evolve to a place where there was more private property. But what they don't tell you is that the same thing was happening in Europe in the old world. In Great Britain and in France, the commons were being fenced off. So the commons is the common property, the common forest, which people used to gather, gather their food and to hunt game and they had agreements. Even the Magna Carta was an example of an agreement that dealt with shared ownership of public property. The only time most of us have heard the word the commons is in the phrase tragedy of the commons, which indicates that it's tragic when people own property commonly and they don't a good job of stewarding the property in other words every individual is just going to want more 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 but that phrase tragedy of the commons is from an article that was written by somebody who knew nothing about the commons the common the both in Europe and in the Americas the people who had common property did a good job of enforcing certain rules as to how the common property was to be used. And it is tragic that the commons were completely abandoned in favor of private ownership which obviously favors the very rich. When there's strict enforcement of private ownership you can be sure that who benefits most from that is the very rich. The very rich benefited when people were pushed off of their land in England and had to go to the cities and provide cheap labor for factories. The very rich benefited when the Native Americans were pushed off of their land, and although small farmers had some opportunity for a while, it was only a matter of time, and not a lot of time, before the big banks and the big agribusiness corporations pushed out the small farmers and had their way with the land at everyone else's expense which brings us to guiding principle number 5 of the new economics foundation which says which provides for a decentralized active state an active state enabling and enabling partner state that is significantly decentralized with strong local institutions that are rooted in and accountable to the communities They serve. If in early America there had been a decentralized, active state that was partnering with people, we would still have a rich community of small farms, which, by the way, the Native Americans could have participated in as well as anybody else. There was not a lot of difference between the culture of the Native Americans and the culture of the settlers. I mean, they had their differences, but they looked more like each other than any either of them looked like the people on the East Coast. We could have had a situation where small farms were able to produce abundant crops for the benefit of the owners and for the benefit of their communities. But we didn't do it that way. It was the Wild West, literally... And the big monopolies got to take over. The big monopoly banks got to take over. And the big monopoly agribusiness corporations got to take over. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If we want small businesses to thrive, they have to be protected by a socialist government. We need to recognize that the community has an interest in protecting small businesses and not allowing small businesses to be out-competed or swallowed up by big businesses. Principle number six, empowered and active communities. Citizens are democratically engaged in the economy with greater power to act collectively and make decisions within their communities to improve their lives. I like saying that we've never seen democracy. We're told that we live in a democracy and to some limited extent that's true, but we have a limited democracy. We have always had a limited democracy. When our republic was first founded the only people who could vote were white male property owners. That was a limited democracy. More to the point The framers of our Constitution intentionally gave us two houses of Congress because that would limit the ability of the people to get their way. People couldn't even elect their own senators until the middle part of the 19th century. And in our history classes, we have been taught of the perils of mob rule. We don't want that democracy. We don't want too much democracy. We don't want the people to have too much power, because who knows what's going to happen if the people have too much power? So we've always had a limited democracy, and now arguably it's not a democracy anymore because money has so much power and control. No matter who you vote for, they're owned by the big banks, and they're owned by the war profiteers, and they're owned by agribusiness. And no matter who you vote for, first and foremost, they're owned by the oil companies. So, we have a democracy in and so far as we get to vote. But money determines who we get to vote to begin with. Who we get to vote for. Money determines who gets the Democratic nomination. And money determines who gets the Republican nomination. It doesn't have to stay that way, but that's the way it is now. And the only way for it to change is for us to nominate candidates that are not bought with corporate money. But anyway, back to the original point, I like saying we've never seen democracy. The big money has taught us to be suspicious of democracy because that serves their interests. If you have power, why would you give it up? If you're a big corporation, the last thing you want is democracy. The big corporations have been making war on democracy at home and abroad for time immemorial. But the thread that runs through the Green New Deals is democracy at every level, including the local level. Democracy at every level, including a democratically worker-owned business. Democracy at every level, including food cooperatives and agricultural cooperatives. Democracy at every level, which means regulating business is not off-limits. Under the philosophy of neoliberalism, which is free market fundamentalism, under the philosophy of neoliberalism, which is this laissez-faire economics, which is a complete fraud, under that philosophy, we're supposed to believe that the best thing the people can do is to leave business alone. But guess what? Business is not leaving us alone. Business is polluting our air and our water and our climate. Business has bought our elected officials. They're not leaving us alone. We need to have the power to democratically control what business does and does not do in our communities. If we say to McDonald's, get lost, we need to have the ability to enforce that. We need to be, have the ability county by county to make that happen if that's what we want. And if we told fast food to get lost or you have there are limitations on what you can do if you're gonna expect to set up in our community, then we need to have the power to vote to make that happen and to enforce it, we need the power to say to agribusiness, there are limits on what you can own in our county because we don't need your darn genetically modified organisms, and we don't need you to drench your crops in Roundup, and we don't need you to kill all our wildflowers to the detriment of our butterflies bees, and birds. We need the power to be able to make these decisions democratically and locally. There is no reason for every city and every county to be overrun by national chains. There is no reason for every city and every county to be overrun by transnational corporations who have brought us NAFTA and the WTO and all of the devastation caused by those agreements. Those tyrannical, anti-democratic agreements. Now, continuing with the New Economics Foundation, our work with communities making change on the ground tells us it is not enough to hand down policy solutions from above. That's what I'm talking about. It's not enough to hand down policy solutions from above. It's not enough to have policy made from Washington, D.C. Continuing to read, we aim to democratize the process of policymaking itself. In other words, the voters are not just going to adopt what the lawmakers decide upon. The voters are going to have a role in the very process of making the policies that affect our lives. Continuing to read, Through popular education, participation, and organizing. In other words, we aim to democratize the process of policymaking itself through popular education, participation, and organizing. Imagine being able to participate in the very process of making policy. Continuing to read, The policy solutions we develop must be shaped by the lived experience of those on the sharp end of the old economy and build on the positive changes we can unlock on the ground now. To ensure this, a simple and distinctive approach runs through all of our work. Here are the principles that, they, that govern how they operate. We bring together new economic analysis with the lived experience of people on the ground. In other words, it's not just theory. It's, it's based on what, how real people respond. And we learn from new economics practice to develop radical policy ideas. So this is an organization that really works with people to help them develop policies. But this next sentence is a real statement about the kind of change we need today. The rules and institutions that shape our economy are not forces of nature beyond our control, but have been designed by people. In other words, corporations were designed by people. We we made them, we can unmake them, or we can remake them. This silly notion of a free market economy. It was made up by people, we can unmake it or remake it. And it says here that over the past 40 years, these rules and institutions have been redesigned to work for corporate power and wealthy elites. We have consented to these rules and institutions that enrich the rich. We have consented to these rules and institutions that give all the power to those that have most of the money. That's not democracy, my friend. That's not democracy. When we give all the power to those that have most of the money, we no longer live in a democracy. Now we're going to go to the New Economics Foundation's version of the Green New Deal. Now I used to think that the Green Party originated the first Green New Deal, and maybe they did. But if so, I think the New Economics Foundation was also in on the planning and drafting of the original Green New Deal back in 2008. Here's what they say about their proposal that they're calling the Green New Deal. We're calling for a program of investment and a call to action as urgent and far-reaching as the U.S. New Deal in the 1930s and the mobilization for war in 1939. Number 1. Creating and training a carbon army of workers to provide the human resources for a vast environmental reconstruction program. We want to see hundreds of thousands of these new high-skilled and high skilled and lower-skilled jobs created in the UK. Remember that New Economics Foundation is in the UK. It will be part of a wider shift from an economy narrowly focused on financial services and shopping to one that is an engine of environmental transformation. The UK has so far largely missed out on the boom in green-collar jobs, with Germany already employing 250,000 in renewable energy alone. So that's item one in this list of eight items in their Green New Deal. The first of these three sentences suggests a vast mobilization In other words, as opposed to what? In today's world, the defenders of business as usual will say, you know, we should just let the free market take care of this. The free market is going to take care of this if we just let the free market take care of this. But the free market doesn't take care of anything but rich people. The free market is a figment of the imagination of an intellectual class that serves Big money. And this intellectual class believes in the free market because it's what they've been taught. It's what we're taught in school, it's what we're taught in higher education, it's what we're taught in the media. But what we need is not a false ideology, what we need is a vast mobilization. It says here we want to see hundreds of thousands of these new high-skilled and lower-skilled jobs created in the UK. So what kinds of jobs are we talking about? We're talking about, okay, we need solar power, so that requires solar engineers. It requires, to make solar panels you need solar engineers, you need mechanical engineers, you need electrical engineers, you need industrial engineers, you need all kinds of technicians. You need salespeople to sell the panels. You need a state-of-the-art energy grid, which means you need a whole other slew of technicians and engineers and urban planners to build the -the state-of-the-art energy grid that we need to accommodate solar power and wind power. We also need engineers and technicians and urban planners to build the system of mass transit that we need. And that's only scratching the surface. We need to reinvent our system of organic farming. We need to reinvent our system of farming and food delivery, which is currently based on a corporate agribusiness model. And it needs to be a system of small farmers that unite together in cooperatives. So we need farmers. We need people to run small local markets. And that's not all. We need people who understand forestry. In that regard, we need people who understand native trees and plants and the conservation of water. We need people who, with expertise in the area of allocating water resources equitably, we need people who understand native plants and can make recommendations about how to support pollinators, bees, butterflies, birds. The list goes on. That's why the Green New Deal is going to create three times as many jobs as the same amount of money spent on the old raw deal. I'm looking at a visual graphic from an article by Clean Technica which communicates in essence that there are three times as many jobs to be had per million dollars invested if we invest in clean energy. The numbers are as follows. If you invest a million dollars in natural gas, you get 5 jobs, coal, 7 jobs, smart grid, 12 jobs, wind, 13 jobs, solar, 14 jobs, biomass, 16 jobs, building retrofits, 17 jobs, and mass transit, 22 jobs. If we care about creating jobs, then we cannot afford to not implement a Green New Deal. And yet what do the naysayers say about the Green New Deal? We can't afford it. The fact is we can't afford not to implement a Green New Deal. I've Got less than a minute left. Let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. The Green New Deal is not one thing. It's not one proposal. It is a whole family of ideas It is a conversation, and it is an opportunity to completely transform our society for the better. We can use this opportunity to create a whole new world, and everybody has to pitch in. We have to work seriously, as if our lives depended on it, but it's an opportunity to have a whole lot of fun in the process. That's all for now. Have a great day.